Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Gary Bowman for today's message. Hey, grab your Bible, please, and uh, there's a message outline if you want to follow along on that in the bulletin, and we're going to look together in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, page 968 in the Bible that's there by you, and uh, we're going to spend the next um, uh, three months or so, uh, four, maybe four months, studying together in this uh, greatest sermon that has ever been preached this sermon that Jesus teaches uh, up in the Galilee, uh, up on a mountain, uh, that he teaches, it's the longest sermon that we find in the Bible that Jesus preached. It's not the longest sermon ever been preached. Moses holds the record for that. In the book of Deuteronomy, he preaches three sermons that just go on and on and on. And, and I've preached much longer sermons than Jesus ever has as well. Uh, do I hear an amen on that? Amen. Thank you. But I don't hold, by the way, I want you to know, I don't hold the record for the longest sermon in history. A guy by the name of Zach Zender in, down in Florida in 2015 holds the record for the longest sermon ever preached. You guys are going to thank your lucky stars after this, by the way. In 2015, Zach preached a sermon that was 51 hours and 18 minutes long. He had over 600 PowerPoint slides. That'd exhaust you uh, alone. And he preached from Friday to Sunday afternoon. And if you guys are interested, we could just get started right now and go into Wednesday or Thursday. We could set a new record. But this isn't the, this isn't the longest sermon in the Bible, the one that Jesus preaches, but it's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's famous. In fact, people who are not Christians, who say they're not Christians, know things from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Gandhi, uh, who was certainly not a believer, never claimed to be a believer in Jesus, he based much of his revolution on this Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder if he ever read this sermon. Because there's some things in this sermon that just smack you in the face that are, let me just say it, impossible. But, but if you just gloss over, if you just read over quickly this sermon, you're going to be waving its flag. But I'll tell you, by the time we're done this morning, you will not be saying, wow, I love the Sermon on the Mount, because <laughs> it's a tough one. But, but not only did Gandhi uh, believe in it or say he believed in it, but people in our culture that don't go to church very often, they know, they know quotes from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't judge, lest you be judged, comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father, the great the Lord's Prayer is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, um, Jesus helps those who help themselves. It's not found in the Sermon on the Mount, nor is it found anywhere in the Bible. It's a bunch of malarkey. Um, um, don't cast your, your pearls before swines, comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do to you, comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's, it's, it's it, many people, not everybody, but many people know some of the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in chapter 5, Matthew, verse 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him 
and he began to teach them. Now, something has happened before Matthew chapter 5. I hope you're reading through Matthew with us, reading, using our uh, reading plan for the month of January. And if you have, you've read what happened before chapter 5. Chapter 1 of Matthew has that genealogy of Jesus, that crazy genealogy with those misfits in it. Remember? Those uh, prostitutes in it and uh, 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 foreigners in it, all in the line of Jesus. And then Jesus is born. And then chapter 2 of Matthew, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he's preaching the message that, the, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is baptized, and then in chapter 3, Jesus goes out in the wilderness, and he's tempted. He's baptized by John, and then he goes out in the wilderness, and he's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And then in chapter 4, Jesus begins preaching. So in other words, this is not the first sermon that Jesus preached. At the end of chapter 4, we find Jesus has gone to the Sea of Galilee region, and he is preaching the gospel, the good news, that you're rescued not by what you do, but all by what Jesus Christ has done. It's this rev it's his, he's preaching his grace. And you know what happens at the end of chapter 4? Some fishermen begin to believe. Some fishermen become his, the Bible uses the word followers. They become his followers. They become his disciples. They become Christians. And a whole bunch of other people are, what do they, what do they call it in real estate? Looky-loos. You know, they're, they're watching to see what's going to happen. Crowds of people. But Jesus has this inner core of people these disciples of his who are believers, who have accepted and understood the gospel. So when we come to chapter 5, remember chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 have happened. They inform us when we come to chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, all these crowds were there, the looky-loos, he went up on a mountainside. We don't know where the mountainside is. Um, the Dominicans, they think they know where the mountainside is. And the, and the Coptics think they know where the mountainside was. And I think I know where the mountainside was, but we don't know where the mountainside was. Somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. And he apparently went partway up, and maybe he came to a flat place, a, a vista or a plain there on the mountainside. And what does he do? He does what rabbis did in the day. He sat down. And who comes to him in verse 1? Who comes to him? What does the text tell us? His disciples come to him. And he began to teach. Now, I, I want you to understand, you're going to talk about this in your growth group a little bit. This is a sermon that is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily teach to people, taught to people who are already believers. This is not a sermon about how you become a Christian. It's a sermon of what happens to you after you are a Christian. I, I picked that up just from that little word there. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them now, the crowd's listening in, and that's okay for the crowd to listen in. That's fine. But he's teaching primarily, first and foremost, to those who have already believed the gospel of Jesus. Now, what we're gonna, as we look at this sermon, I'm going to tell you this morning three things about this sermon. I'm going to tell you the first thing is that this is good. This Sermon on the Mount is good. This is good stuff here. I'm going to tell you secondly, but you're not good enough. And when I say you, I mean me too. I'm not good enough. But when I say you're good enough, you're not good enough, it includes me in that, okay? So please don't be overly offended. Be offended that you're not good enough. I had someone after first service come up and say, 
Gary, you're not good enough. And at first I was offended, but then I remembered, I'm not good enough. And then thirdly, I'm going to tell you, and that that's good news. And I'm going to tell you why that's good news. This is good. You're not good enough. And that's good news. So there you are. If you want to fall asleep, you can know the three points of the message. If I fall asleep, just someone wake me at noon. Okay, so let's think together about the first point, that this is good. You see, the reason I say this is good is because this sermon, and, and if you're reading along in the Bible with us in our Matthew reading, and there's some extra reading charts back, back by that table there at the back door, um, you've read through the Sermon on the Mount three or four times already if you're reading through that schedule with us. This, there's some really good stuff here. This is the way you've always wanted your neighbor to live. This is the way you've always wanted that person who works in your office that guy or gal, or that goes to school with you, or, the, or, or your kids to live. This is the way you've always wanted other people to live. This is good, right? And really, it's the way that you would always want to live, too, especially if everybody else is living this way. You go first, and then I'll, then I'll live this way. So it's good. And I want to tell you this. This is the most important thing, is that this is the way Jesus wants you to live. You see, when Jesus preaches, he's not just flapping his jaw. He's not just saying things for you to go, oh, good, I have another th- notes on another thing. I put some notes in my, in my uh, phone app. That's not the reason Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches to change us. And he wants you to be like what he describes in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants you to be like he is. So when he preaches this thing, he wants to change you. Okay. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to fly at 10,000 feet. We're not going to fly at 50,000, but we're not going to be down quite at ground level. In the weeks to come, we're going to be very much at ground level. We're going to be right down in the weeds. We're going to have the landing gear down. We'll be down on the ground. But today I'm going to just look at, I don't know how many we'll look at, six or seven characteristics of, of what the sermon teaches us. There's a lot more, but I'm just going to, going to kind of hit some mountaintops. Six or seven ways Jesus wants his followers, that's who we are if you're a believer. He's preaching it to believers, followers. That's who you are if you're a believer in Jesus, how, what he wants our, what's fo- followers to be. So the first thing he says there in verse, verse um, uh, 3, Jesus said, and in, in my Bible there's a title, it says the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, be, the word Beatitude is a Latin word. It simply means blessings, blessings. So these are the blessings of those who are followers of Jesus. And they are people who are poor in, the, poor in spirit. They are people who mourn. People, verse 5, who are meek. People, verse 6, who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, they're merciful. Verse 8, they're pure in heart. Verse 9, they're peacemakers. Verse 10, they're persecuted because of, because of um because of righteousness, because of his name's sake. Now, this is, Jesus is not describing eight different people. He's describing one of his followers. And he's saying, all of my followers will live to live like this. This is not a smorgasbord, okay? This is not Chipotle, where you go through and say, I'll take some of this, I'll take some of that. Not any of that, and I'll take some of this and take some of that. This is not Chipotle, This is what his followers look like and act like. They are pure in heart. They are meek. They they mourn. They're they're merciful. 
Jesus, and we're going to dig into this next week. Jesus says, this is what his followers look like. There's one. Here's the second one. Jesus says in verse 13 that his followers are salt and light. Jesus says that his followers will relate and interact with the world around them like salt and light interact with the world around them. Now let's think about light. Let's think about the second one, uh, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now, you can do different things with light. Um, One of the reasons I'm sitting down this morning is our grandsons are spending the weekend with us. Enough said, right? And I tell you, it was exhausting last night. These guys had a three-hour bedtime ritual last night. And as April tried to get them to bed for three straight hours, I was exhausted changing the TV channels. Tried to turn the volume up really loud because they were screaming and hollering and crying. Not April. The grand boys. The grand boys, right? And when we, when we laid them down onto their, onto their, they had some little pallets there, and they got, April got them new sheets for, for one of them. And, uh, and so we lay them down on their pallets, and we're talking with them, and we're reading stories with them. Uh, Miss Nelson's, what's the, what's the name of the book, Miss Nelson? Yeah, I, I, Miss Nelson is missing. Anybody? No, no, no. I love it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. But the boys had flashlights. April gave them flashlights. And you know flashlights now are not like when I was a kid. You know, they had this little wimpy, little light in it. You could barely see. These are like 480-watt halogen. You know, you see the guys driving their cars with these lights that blind you, blue. That's what these boys had. And Nelson, the little guy, he's just shining it all around. I said, Nelson, and he puts the flashlight right at you. You know, like, ah! You can't see a thing for a day and a half after that. And, and I was thinking, you know, that's what you can do. You are the light of the world, and that's what you can do to people. You can just blind them. You can just put the light in their eyes. You are so bad. You are so wrong. But how does Jesus want us to be lights of the world? He wants us to go into dark places and show the way. See, a flashlight's great in a hallway that's dark to make it to the end of the hallway, to go down the stairs when the light's not on. A flashlight is really great when you're in the forest or you see the guys riding their bikes down here in the canyon, you know, at night. that Man, that's awesome that you got a bright light there because it shows the way. It shows the path. And Jesus says that's what my followers are like, is when they see darkness, they don't run away from darkness. My followers run to darkness I got a confession to make. I like living in East Lake. I like the comforts. And I don't want to go where it's dark. I don't want to go where it's difficult. I want to shine the light around here. Come here. Come here if you're in darkness. But what Jesus says is his followers go where it's dark and shine their light. And salt. Think about salt. I think we have about nine different kinds of salt at our house. We have ionized salt. We have sea salt. We have dead sea salt. We have salt salt. And we have undeionized salt, salt, salt. And I just, I, April's got, we just have all different kinds of, we have pink salt. I, don't, I have no idea. What? Himalayan salt. Nobody gets anything over on the Bowmans. Nobody. 
It all tastes exactly the same to me. You know what it tastes like? It's amazing. It's amazing. I like salt. I'm going to be in big trouble this afternoon, by the way. But I bought some of them myself. So, uh, um, But I like salt because I like to put it on food, right? And it spices it, right? In Jesus' day, that's one of the ways they used it. But primarily, they used it a very different way, right? To preserve things that were rotting or preserve them from rotting. So a piece of fish or, or meat. They didn't have refrigeration, but they discovered that if you salt it, it keeps it from rotting or decaying. That's what Jesus, I think, is primarily talking about. Oh, yeah, we should be the spice of the world, of course. But I think primarily he's saying that when, when my followers smell rotting things in their culture, they don't run away from it. They go toward what's rotting because they are the salt of the world, just like Jesus was. What did Jesus do? Did he stay in heaven and say what you need is some healing and preservation? What did Jesus do? He didn't stay in the salt shaker of heaven, did he? But what did he do? He, the Bible uses this word, he poured himself out. And that's what you and I are to do. We're not to stay in the salt shaker. We're to pour ourselves out. That's what followers of Jesus do. They're salt and light. Here's the third one, uh, Matthew 5, 27. Is Jesus' followers are one women men or one man women? Now, what I'm trying to say there is that if you're a man, you're all about one woman. If you're a woman, you're all about one man. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ay, ay, ay. You know what? I am not liking this Sermon on the Mount as much as I used to. I'm an adulterer. You know, I have never touched another woman since April and I were married 40 years ago. But I'm an adulterer. That's what Jesus said. This Sermon on the Mount is difficult to swallow. This is, this is hard stuff. There is only one person that followers of Jesus are to be sexual with in their thoughts, their minds, and their actions. And it's the woman I'm married to. It's the, if you're a woman, it's the, it's the man, the one man you're married to. Not, not the one man you wished you were married to or that you hope you're going to get married to, or that you're going to get married to in six months, or that you used to be married to. It's the one man or one woman, flip it around, that you are married to permanently for life. My eyes are for her only. I'm a, I'm a one-woman man. That's, we, we men are to be one-woman wo men. You women are to be one-man, one-man women. Don't anyone misquote me on this. Okay, you know, you, know, you know what I'm saying here. Permanently and without exception. But you're not. Amen. I don't like this sermon. I thought I was going to like this sermon. Let's go to Philippians. I don't know. It's, how about a psalm? I mean, got a good psalm. You know, let's, let's just kind of, I mean, I'll preach through Revelation. Uh, anything but this, okay? This is tough stuff. Um, uh, they're always honest. I'm not even going to take much time on that one. 
Honestly, I'm not going to take much time on that one. Uh, verse 33, again, you heard it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill. But I tell you, don't swear by an oath. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I do this sometimes. I do it with you. I do it with my wife. I do it with my kids. I'll say, now honestly, well, why do I say that? Because what I just said before wasn't honest. You you hear this on the commentators. I watch Fox and I watch CNN and my head spins on both of them, right? But what are the comments? You listen to the commentators. They say two things. They say, um, now, when they want to pivot, that's what they say now. And then they say, honestly. Watch them, how they say that a lot of times. Yeah, because you weren't seeing the truth before. So now you got to, and what Jesus is saying is his followers always tell the truth. Ay, 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 ay. Well, Usually there is some truth in everything I say. No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? He's saying they always tell the truth. I was in a Bible study with some guys not too very long ago, and one of the guys told us something one week that was kind of hard and kind of difficult, kind of sad, and we said, oh, gosh, and we empathized with him and prayed for him. And he came back the next week, and he said, you know what, guys, I need to tell you, remember what I told you last week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't tell you the whole thing. And what he told us then made him look really bad. He hadn't told us the truth. But he was being a Jesus follower, wasn't he? And he was honest, finally. He was honest when it even, even when it hurt him. And that's what Jesus followers are. They're honest even when it hurts them. They're always honest. Um, um, oh, here's one. Oh, gosh, I can't skip over it. It's right there. Verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's read that. Let's read it together, okay? You have heard that it was, I, I, meant, I meant read it out loud together. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I am with Jesus all the way on this one, right? Isn't this awesome? What? Wrong. But there's one of those buts in the Bible again, right? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ay, ay, ay. Love those who do you wrong. And it's not a passive um, loving, is it? It's not a, well, I'll wait for them to make the first move. The text is going to tell us that it's not that. It's that we make the first move. Is that we're more than civil, with people who think differently, think politically different than us. You know, I, I had a discussion with a guy um, back in November, and it was a it was a polit- it was a it was about politics. I was so wound up inside after about forty five minutes in this conversation. I was so angry at this guy inside. I, you know, he knew he knew some of it, but inside I was like, "Are you an idiot?" How can you think that? I mean, that's what was going on in my head. It just had gotten so heated. And, and, well, and Jesus says something about that earlier in the sermon. But I skipped that one. I'm not even going to think about that one. But what did Jesus say to me with this brother? But I tell you, love your enemies. And this guy's not even my enemy. 
So if I'm to love my enemy, what am I to do with, with, with someone that's on my own side so that you might be children of your Father in heaven? Christ followers make those that are our enemies feel welcomed. We're not just civil. We love them so far that we make them feel welcomed back into our lives. Um, no, verse 19, chapter 6, go to chapter 6. Just hitting some mountaintops here. Verse 19 uh, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. For Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Followers of Jesus care more about the stock market of heaven than the stock market on earth. And their investments... Our investments and in followers of Jesus are in things that will be eternal. They're in people's lives, and they're, they're, uh, they're, they're to be in, come involved with people who can't speak for themselves, and to um, investment in places, take the gospel where the gospel's never gone before. That's where our, our investments are to be. That's how you store up treasures. We'll come back and think a whole lot more about that. But Christ followers invest in what will last forever. They're irrationally generous. That's what they are. And then seventh, one more. Um, let's see here. Ver chapter 6, verse uh, 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry. Verse 28. And why do you worry? Uh, look at verse 32 of chapter 6. For the pagans, the non-believers, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. And, and what I want to say is what Jesus is telling us in this passage is followers of Jesus believe Jesus' promises. They believe God's, the Father's promises and the Spirit's promises and Jesus' promises. That's what God's people do. That's what God's followers do. And when you and me worry and have anxiety. What you're saying is, God, I can't trust your promises. It's sin. That's what it is. Because God has promised to be with, and, and I'm a worrier. This is what he says, is, is I'll be with you no matter what. But the problem is, is I don't think Jesus knows best for my life. Because I've got a plan, I've got it figured out. And he's not doing it the way that I think he should do it do it. And, and, and so I disbelieve his promises to me. And Jesus, you're not going to be on time. You're not going to do it the way I think you should. You're not going to change this. You're not going to change it. That's what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is the Lord's going to stay with us. That's his promise to us. He says, don't worry. I, I worry about keeping this sermon. I worry about What's going to happen next? I, I worry about my grandkids. I worry about my kids. I worry about Paseo del Rey. Listen, I'm the master worrier. Jesus says his followers are not worriers. Man, th this, this, this is a tough sermon on the mount. Now, what we said is true. This is good because this is what Jesus tells us that he wants us to do. This is good, but here I want to tell you the second point is you're not good enough. Uh, you've seen as we've gone through this sermon, I am not merciful. Oh, I look like I'm merciful, and, and, and I'm merciful to a point, but you push me, and there is no mercy. 
But what did Jesus say in chapter 6? He says, my followers are merciful. That's what they're, they're marked by. Let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I am not pure in heart. There's places in me that are, that are, that are somewhat pure. But man, if you had an x-ray machine, and if I had an x-ray machine, you know your heart's not pure either. Oh, there's good there. God's doing good things, but it's not pure in heart. So, um, and, 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 and I want to stay away from messy and broken people. They're going to drain me. And they're going to take from me. And I don't want to always pour myself out. I don't want to be salt. I don't want to always be light. I want, I want safety, and I want comfort. And I want safety for my kids, and I want comfort for my kids and for my grandkids. And I want my retirement to be safe and comfortable. And Jesus is saying some pretty radical things here, that you're to pour yourself out. I can't stay in the salt shaker. And doggone it, I'm an adulterer. And you are too. Man, you're not good enough. And I'm not good enough. This is crazy talking. This is unattainable. You know what the Sermon on the Mount does? If you really read it, it terrorizes you. That's what it does. Man, Gandhi didn't read the same Sermon on the Mount that I read. And those of us that go, oh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's just the most wonderful piece of literature in history. This sermon is, they have not read this Sermon on the Mount. Look at, look at ch in chapter um, 6, look in chapter 6, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. Did you read this when you read this sermon three times this month already? Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If that doesn't terrorize you in the middle of the night, I don't know what would. If your righteousness, my righteousness, does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you'll not, enter, you'll not, inherit the, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. Look what he says in chapter 5, the very last verse of chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I, yai, yai. That's Spanish, by the way, or I have no idea what it's for. But it is we are in a heap of trouble, aren't we? We are undone by the Sermon on the Mount. And, and when we actually read it, it drives us to despair because it exposes us and it condemns us. And it not only condemns our actions, but here's what's worse. It condemns our attitude because I can go through life, you know, controlling. I, I, I've been married for 40 years. I've never touched another woman in 40 years. Never touched her. See, I can, I can on the exterior not be an adulterer, but on the inside be the chief of adulterers. I could be. I'm not. God's given me victory, given me help, but I'm still an adulterer. And, and you can go through your whole life and never pull a gun on anyone and shoot him in the head. But you can be a murderer, Jesus says. You see, this sermon condemns us. 
on the outside and on the inside because we're not good enough. And my prayer, I have a prayer this morning. Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. I don't live this way, and I can't live this way. I'm not good enough. Nobody can live this way. And that's the good news, amen, is nobody can live this way except one, the hero of the story. And his name is Jesus, because Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, didn't he? He always turned the other cheek, didn't he? I don't. He was always merciful. I'm not. He, 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 he never um, uh, murdered anyone. He never lusted after a woman. Jesus did what we can't do. And here's the good, good news of that, is that now, as a follower of his, he lives inside of you. And so now, you have a new power. See, it's not your New Year's resolution, is it? <laughs> Gosh, those are already gone. It's the 14th, right? Those are already defeated. You've stopped going to the gym already. I saw the piece of chocolate cake you had last night, right? Right? I, I haven't read my Bible every day this year. I, I need to confess. You see, it's not about your willpower. It's not about your strength. It's not about you never being able to turn your cheek, and then you're defeated and beaten down when you can't keep it. It's now Jesus living inside of you who gives you new desires and who gives you new power. He doesn't just give you the desire and then say, sorry, you can't do it. And he doesn't just give you power. He gives you that desire now to want to turn that other cheek. He gives you that desire now, that inkling of a desire a lot of times it begins with to love someone who has hurt you. He gives you that desire to go into the rotten, messy places in life. That little inkling of a desire, that comes from him. You didn't make that up. And he gives you the power to become and to obey the sermon on the mount and become everything that you want to be to be merciful and pure in heart and just choose not to lust. And, and our challenge for us in the Sermon on the Mount series is not to try harder, but to lean harder. But to lean onto Jesus, the one who, who Hebrews tells us, we don't have this high priest who can't sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he never sinned. He's living inside of you. He's living inside of me. Uh, imagine if you saw people driving cars. You'd never driven a car before. And someone gives you a brand new Range Rover. Wouldn't that be sweet? And they give you the Range, Range Rover, and they give you the keys. This is yours. Man, you look at it. This is awesome. This is beautiful. This is what I've always wanted. And the next time I see you, you're on H Street, and you got the door open, and you're pushing the car down H Street. And you want to turn into Costco. And so you, you turn the wheel, and you're pushing the car, and you're pushing it, and you got to push it up the hill there a little bit. And all the other cars are kind of going by you, and and then you pull into a parking spot, and you're pushing the car. And then you're done, and you back out, and you pu push up, back up 8th Street. You're pushing this car. 
this ain't going to last very long, right? So I go up to him and say, what are you doing? What's going on? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking my car out for a spin. I needed to go down to Pep Boys and to Costco and Rubio's. And man, this is a, look at the seats. Look at the, look at the sound system in this car. This car is awesome. Yeah, but what are you doing? I'm taking my car out for a spin, I told you. Did they give you a key? Yeah, I got a key. It's right here in my pocket. Did you put it in the ignition? Yeah, that's how I get the sound. Did you turn it? What? I didn't hear about that. Okay, let's do it. You turn it, and you sit on the seat. Now watch this. Watch this. Push on that pedal. And that car begins to take you everywhere you've always wanted to go. You see, Jesus is the engine, isn't he? This is a, it's a silly analogy, but I, but I want to help you. I think too many of us are using our own willpower, our own strength, and our own hope, and we're pushing the car around life. And let me tell you, that's burdensome. You're not going to make it up some hills, and you're not going to make it very far. Oh, you can do some of it, but you can't. You can't live like Jesus wants you to live. And he says, get in. And you start up. You just push that pedal. And it's him that powers you to go where he wants you to go. This is not about self-help, the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon was given to condemn you, to drive you to Jesus, to do what you can't do on your own. And I want you to lean on him. And I want to lean on him. I want to pray that for you. And I want you to pray that for me. That we would lean on his power through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to be who you're not good enough to be, but he is. Jesus, we, we recognize afresh this morning that we are not good enough by a, a million light years. We're not perfect, and our righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees. And we don't turn the other cheek. And we do worry that we, a lot of times, run from what's putrid. And we shine light in people's eyes and blind them who need someone to shine a light on a path. The path is you. Jesus, we, we stand, we sit condemned. But you've come in your grace. And your grace is all that we need. And Jesus, may we lean into you. You live inside of us by your Holy Spirit. You have kept this Sermon on the Mount perfectly. And so when we're confronted to hate, Jesus, may we lean on you and say, Jesus, I can't do this. And you go, good, I can through you. When we want to seek revenge, may we say, Jesus, I, I, I so bad, I so badly want to hurt them back. They hurt me so. Uh, I, Jesus says, I can do that through you. When we start to worry, May we say, Jesus, I, 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 I don't know. I've I, I got so much anxiety about this. Jesus, listen, listen, listen. My Father's promises are always true. I will give you strength to believe his promises through this. 
May we lean on Jesus. And may we be all that he wants us to be. In his name we pray. Amen.